Chapter Five of Sir Dominic Ferrand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Sir Dominic Ferrand by Henry James. Chapter Five. It tormented him so the next morning that after threshing it out a little further, he felt he had something of a grievance. Mrs. Rives's intervention had made him acutely uncomfortable, for she had taken the attitude of exerting pressure without, it appeared, recognizing on his part an equal right. She had imposed herself as an influence, yet she held herself aloof as a participant. There were things she looked to him to do for her, yet she could tell him of no good that would come to him from the doing. She should either have had less to say, or have been willing to say more, and he asked himself why he should be the sport of her moods and her mysteries. He perceived her knack of punctual interference to be striking, but it was just this apparent infallibility that he resented. Why didn't she set up at once as a professional clairvoyant, and eke out her little income more successfully? In purely private life such a gift was disconcerting. Her divinations, her evasions, disturbed at any rate his own tranquillity. What disturbed it still further was that he received early in the day a visit from Mr. Lockett, who, leaving him under no illusion as to the grounds of such an honour, remarked as soon as he had got into the room, or rather while he still panted on the second flight, and the smudged little slavey held open Baron's door, that he had taken up his young friend's invitation to look at Sir Dominic Ferrand's letters for himself. Peter drew them forth with a promptitude intended to show that he recognized the commercial character of the call, and without attenuating the inconsequence of this departure from the last determination he had expressed to Mr. Lockett. He showed his visitor the Davenport and the hidden recess, and he smoked a cigarette, humming softly, with a sense of unwanted advantage and triumph, while the cautious editor sat silent and handled the papers. For all his caution, Mr. Lockett was unable to keep a warm alight out of his judicial eye, as he said to Baron at last with sociable brevity, a tone that took many things for granted. "'I'll take them home with me. They require much attention.' The young man looked at him a moment. "'Do you think they're genuine?' He didn't mean to be mocking. He meant not to be. But the words sounded so to his own ear, and he could see that they produced that effect on Mr. Lockett. I can't in the least determine. I shall have to go into them at my leisure, and that's why I ask you to lend them to me. He had shuffled the papers together with a movement charged while he spoke, with the air of being preliminary to that of thrusting them into a little black bag which he had brought with him, and which, resting on the shelf of the Davenport, struck Peter, who viewed it askance, as an object darkly editorial. It made our young man somehow suddenly apprehensive. The advantage of which he had just been conscious was about to be transferred by a quiet process of legerdemain to a person who already had advantages enough. Baron, in short, felt a deep pang of anxiety. He couldn't have said why. Mr. Lockett took decidedly too many things for granted, and the explorer of Sir Dominic Ferrand's irregularities 
remembered afresh how clear he had been, after all, about his indisposition to traffic in them. He asked his visitor to what end he wished to remove the letters, since on the one hand there was no question now of the article in the promiscuous which was to reveal their existence, and on the other he himself, as their owner, had a thousand insurmountable scruples about putting them into circulation. Mr. Lockett looked over his spectacles as over the battlements of a fortress. "'I'm not thinking of the end, I'm thinking of the beginning. A few glances have assured me that such documents ought to be submitted to some competent eye.' "'Oh, you mustn't show them to any one!' Baron exclaimed. "'You may think me presumptuous, but the eye that I venture to allude to in those terms—' "'Is the eye now fixed so terribly on me?' Peter laughingly interrupted. "'Oh, it would be interesting, I confess, to know how they strike a man of your acuteness.' It had occurred to him that by such a concession he might endear himself to a literary umpire hitherto implacable. There would be no question of his publishing Sir Dominic Ferrand, but he might, in due acknowledgment of services rendered, form the habit of publishing Peter Baron. "'How long would it be your idea to retain them?' he inquired in a manner which, he immediately became aware, was what incited Mr. Lockett to begin stuffing the papers into his bag. With this perception he came quickly closer, and laying his hand on the gaping receptacle, lightly drew its two lips together. In this way the two men stood for a few seconds, touching, almost in the attitude of combat, looking hard into each other's eyes. The tension was quickly relieved, however, by the surprised flush which mantled on Mr. Lockett's brow. He fell back a few steps with an injured dignity that might have been a protest against physical violence. "'Really, my dear young sir, your attitude is tantamount to an accusation of intended bad faith. Do you think I want to steal the confounded things?' In reply to such a challenge, Peter could only hastily declare that he was guilty of no discourteous suspicion. He only wanted a limit named, a pledge of every precaution against accident. Mr. Lockett admitted the justice of the demand, assured him that he would restore the property within three days, and completed, with Peter's assistance, his little arrangements for removing it discreetly. When he was ready, his treacherous reticule distended with its treasures, he gave a lingering look at the inscrutable Davenport. It's how they ever got into that thing that puzzles one's brain. There was some concatenation of circumstances that would doubtless seem natural enough if it were explained, but that one would have to remount the stream of time to ascertain. To one course I have definitely made up my mind, not to make any statement or any inquiry at the shop. I simply accept the mystery, said Peter, rather grandly. That would be thought a cheap escape if you were to put it into a story, Mr. Lockett smiled. Yes, I shouldn't offer the story to you. I shall be impatient till I see my papers again, the young man called out, as his visitor hurried downstairs. That evening, by the last delivery, he received under the Dover postmark a letter that was not from Miss Teagle. It was a slightly confused but altogether friendly note, written that morning after breakfast, the ostensible purpose of which was to thank him for the amiability of his visit, 
to express regret at any appearance the writer might have had of meddling with what didn't concern her, and to let him know that the evening before, after he had left her, she had in a moment of inspiration got hold of the tale of a really musical idea, a perfect accompaniment for the song he had so kindly given her. She had scrawled as a specimen a few bars at the end of her note, mystic, mocking, musical signs, which had no sense for her correspondent. The whole letter testified to a restless, but rather pointless desire to remain in communication with him. In answering her, however, which he did that night before going to bed, it was on this bright possibility of their collaboration, its advantages for the future of each of them, that Baron principally expatiated. He spoke of this future with an eloquence of which he would have defended the sincerity, and drew a picture of it extravagantly rich. The next morning, as he was about to settle himself to tasks for some time terribly neglected, with the sense that after all it was rather a relief not to be sitting so close to Sir Dominic Ferrand, who had become dreadfully distracting, at the very moment at which he habitually addressed his preliminary invocation to the muse, he was agitated by the arrival of a telegram which proved to be an urgent request from Mr. Lockett that he would immediately come down and see him. This represented, for poor Baron, whose funds were very low, another morning sacrificed, but somehow it didn't even occur to him that he might impose his own time upon the editor of The Promiscuous, the keeper of the keys of renown. He had some of the plasticity of the raw contributor. He gave the muse another holiday, feeling she was really ashamed to take it, and in course of time found himself in Mr. Lockett's own chair, at Mr. Lockett's own table, so much nobler an expanse than the slippery slope of the Davenport, considering with quick intensity in the white flash of certain words just brought out by his host, the quantity of happiness, the emancipation that might reside in a hundred pounds. Yes, that was what it meant. Mr. Lockett, in the twenty-four hours, had discovered so much in Sir Dominic's literary remains that his visitor found him primed with an offer. A hundred pounds would be paid him that day, that minute, and no questions would be either asked or answered. I take all the risks, I take all the risks the editor of The Promiscuous repeated. The letters were out on the table, Mr. Lockett was on the hearth-rug like an orator on a platform, and Peter, under the influence of his sudden ultimatum, had dropped rather weakly into the seat which happened to be nearest, and which, as he became conscious, had moved on a pivot, he whirled round so as to enable himself to look at his tempter with an eye intended to be cold. What surprised him most was to find Mr. Lockett taking exactly the line about the expediency of publication, which he would have expected Mr. Lockett not to take. Hush it all up! A barren scandal, an offence that can't be remedied, is the thing in the world that least justifies an airing. Some such line as that was the line he would have thought natural to a man whose life was spent in weighing questions of propriety and who had only the other day objected, in the light of this virtue, to a work of the most disinterested art. But the author of that incorruptible masterpiece had put his finger on the place in saying to his interlocutor on the occasion of his last visit that, if given to the world in the pages of the promiscuous, 
Sir Dominic's aberrations would sell the edition. It was not necessary for Mr. Lockett to reiterate to his young friend his phrase about their making a sensation. If he wished to purchase the rights, as theatrical people said, it was not to protect a celebrated name or lock them up in a cupboard. That formula of Barron's covered all the ground, and one edition was a low estimate of the probable performance of the magazine. Peter left the letters behind him, and on withdrawing from the editorial presence took a long walk on the embankment. His impressions were at war with each other. He was flurried by the possibilities of which he had yet denied the existence. He had consented to trust Mr. Lockett with the papers a day or two longer, till he should have thought out the terms on which he might, in the event of certain occurrences, be induced to dispose of them. A hundred pounds were not this gentleman's last word, nor perhaps was mere unreasoning intractability Peter's own. He sighed as he took no note of the pictures made by barges, sighed because it all might mean money. He needed money bitterly, he owed it in disquieting quarters. Mr. Lockett had put it before him that he had a high responsibility, that he might vindicate the disfigured truth, contribute a chapter to the history of England. You haven't a right to suppress such momentous facts, the hungry little editor has declared, thinking how the series, he would spread it into three numbers, would be the talk of the town. If Peter had money he might treat himself to ardor, to bliss. Mr. Lockett had said, no doubt justly enough, that there were ever so many questions one would have to meet should one venture to play so daring a game. These questions, embarrassments, dangers, the danger, for instance, of the cropping up of some lurking litigious relative, he would take over unreservedly and bear the brunt of dealing with. It was to be remembered that the papers were discredited, vitiated by their childish pedigree, such a preposterous origin, suggesting, as he had hinted before, the feeble ingenuity of a third-rate novelist, was a thing he should have to place himself at the positive disadvantage of being silent about. He would rather give no account of the matter at all than expose himself to the ridicule that such a story would infallibly excite. Couldn't one see them in advance, the clever, taunting things the daily and weekly papers would say? Peter Barron had his guileless side, but he felt, as he worried with a stick that betrayed him the granite parapets of the Thames, that he was not such a fool as not to know how Mr. Lockett would work the mystery of his marvellous find. Nothing could help it on better with the public than the impenetrability of the secret attached to it. If Mr. Lockett should only be able to kick up dust enough over the circumstances that had guided his hand, his fortune would literally be made. Peter thought a hundred pounds a low bid, yet he wondered how the promiscuous could bring itself to offer such a sum. So large it loomed in the light of literary remuneration as hitherto revealed to our young man. The explanation of this anomaly was, of course, that the editor shrewdly saw a dozen ways of getting his money back. There would be in the sensation, at a later stage, the making of a book in large type, the book of the hour, and the profits of this scandalous volume, or if one preferred the name, this reconstruction before an impartial posterity of a great historical humbug, 
the sum down, in other words, that any lively publisher would give for it, figured vividly in Mr. Lockett's calculations. It was therefore altogether an opportunity of dealing at first hand with the lively publisher that Peter was invited to forego. Peter gave a masterful laugh, rejoicing in his heart that on the spot, in the repair he had lately quitted, he had not been tempted by a figure that would have approximately represented the value of his property. It was a good job, he mentally added, as he turned his face homeward, that there was so little likelihood of his having to struggle with that particular pressure. End of chapter 5